0: And now as we turn to God's Word, let us pray briefly here for God's illumination for His light. O gracious God, as we turn to Your Word for us this morning, may the Spirit of God rest upon us. Help us to be steadfast in our hearing, in our speaking, in our believing, and in our living. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, hear now the word of the Lord. Finally, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you learn from us how you ought to live and to please God, as in fact you are doing, you should do so more and more, for you know what instruction we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication. That each one of you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one wrong or exploit a brother or sister in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, just as we have already told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God did not call us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever rejects this, rejects not human authority but God who also gives his holy spirit to you this is the word of the lord be to God. well folks we have arrived we are at the end of the last of the big seven lust this ought to be fun right i think sometimes people come to church on these sundays what's pastor going to do let's watch him squirm up there I must admit to some uneasiness about speaking about this topic, Uh, but then I thought to myself, hey, you know, having a sermon entitled Lust on my YouTube channel is going to do wonders for my viewership, right? All the clicks I'll get. Of course, they'll be disappointed quickly uh, after watching, so engagement will likely not be long. But it is true, right? Sex sells. We all know that in our internet age particularly. Lust is great clickbait. We all know that. Any of us who have ever surfed a web or gone to a website, you know how sex sells. I'm just old enough to remember the pre-internet days. And mercifully, those were the days of my adolescence. In those days, the lingerie section of the JCPenney catalog Could prove quite intriguing to a young boy, and to get something as elusive as an issue of Playboy, well that required an elaborate and clandestine scheme that had indeed a great deal of public risk to it. Today, however, it's as easy as a couple of clicks in the privacy of your home, and the world of lust is yours to explore. Today, lust is everywhere. Sex and sexuality are ubiquitous in our daily lives. We really have, in a sense, become desensitized to it. We are all rather obsessed with sex. The evangelical church and the political right are obsessed with sex. LGBTQ plus issues, evangelism now, evangelicalism I should say, you know how it used to make stars of people who were former drug dealers or gang members and you put, you know, those were the stars, those who converted, so to speak, from that lifestyle. Well now those who become famous are those who purport to have once been gay and now are no longer and they become authors and they become famous as darlings of the evangelical movement. After losing the battle on gay marriage, now the obsession becomes transgenderism as the biggest threat to us all. The evangelical church and the political right seem sex obsessed. But so too does the progressive church and the political left. They too are also obsessed with sex, it's all they can talk about, sexuality and sexual orientation being so key and so central to our identity, even more important than our identity in Christ, canceling those who would even dare to question some of these orthodoxies of the movement, giving them monikers of hate-mongering and things like that for merely asking the question, pressing every possible issue to the extent of every edge of every envelope without considering or even thoughtfulness related to the social implications of whether this is really good. Is this agenda good for people? Everyone is obsessed. With sex, it's all we can talk about. Sexuality, sexual identity, sexual orientation. Even our own denomination has just got done producing a report on human sexuality, which is 175 pages long. Now, I generally agree with that report of our denomination. But it's a reflection of how obsessed we are with this topic as a church, as a culture. Now, do you know who wasn't obsessed with sex? Jesus. Jesus. If you look at the teachings of Jesus, think about how few times he talked about sex. Yes, there's that big one in the Sermon on the Mount, right? The one that's related to our sermon. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There's a brief reference in Matthew 15 to sexual immorality and a list of sins that Jesus makes. But but give me another example. The woman caught in adultery. We could argue that's even about sex. We could argue if that even belongs in the canon of Scripture. Matthew 19, where Jesus talks about divorce and eunuchs and celibacy and things like that. Maybe I'll give you that. But Jesus was obsessed with a lot of things. With the poor, with the oppressed, with injustice, with religious leaders who were not faithful to their calling, to people who put barriers between people and God. He was obsessed with money and talking about that, hypocrisy, the abuse of power, the lack of faith. Yeah, he was really obsessed with that. But he seemed rather, in a relative terms, unconcerned about human sexuality. What about Paul? Paul's that prudish guy, right? He's got to be a sex-obsessed like we are. Again, if you really look at the writings of Paul... If we can put aside 1 Corinthians, because there's a lot of wacky stuff going on in that church. I mean, Paul was having to deal with stuff, people having sex with their mother-in-law. I mean, it it was like wild stuff. So he had to deal with an occasional problem in a particular church. But if you take that out of the picture, what you find is some very direct admonitions about behavior, but very short sentences, certainly nowhere near 175 pages. And I would even argue the Bible as a whole doesn't really get hung up on this issue. Even that controversial issue of homosexuality, people talk about the seven verses in the Bible. You can look at that in a couple of ways. And one way to look at it is, there's only seven verses in the Bible where that's talked about, and they're very short. Nowhere near 175 pages. William Willimon, in his book, On the Seven Deadly Sins, talks about lust, and he brings up the book, The Da Vinci Code. You remember that book by Dan Brown? It was big rage, right? And churches uh, felt they needed to talk about it. I think I did a a thing about it. And, uh, of course, in that book, one of the kind of storylines, plot lines, was that Jesus had a romantic relationship with Mary Magdalene. And in discussing the book with a group that he was, uh, Willimon was leading a discussion group on the book, He said this during that meeting. He said, I don't think this book tells us anything about Jesus, but it tells us a lot about ourselves. That we should have such curiosity about the sexuality of Jesus is telling. We can't imagine a human being who is not obsessed with sex. We as a church, as a culture, both left and bull and right on this political spectrum, we are just way too obsessed with sex, and perhaps we should take that advice of Aaron Burr, and talk less, smile more. And I really do think the church would be wise to do that. We have so much more work to do. But having said that, of course, here I am, a Christian pastor on a Sunday, Lord's Day morning, a biblically serious one. I'd like to believe that about myself. And here I am talking about it again. I'm going to talk to you about sex this morning. But in my defense, I do believe we do have to talk about it at times. Because although God isn't sex-obsessed like we are, he cares. He cares. God cares. He cares about our sexuality. He cares about your sexuality. God is the Lord of all, even human sexuality. And because he cares deeply about it, we need to care about it too. And I need to talk about it. God designed sex. He made it, right? It's his, and he deserves at least a little bit of input on how we should use the gift of human sexuality. So, be you male or female, straight or gay, single or divorced, married, etc., God cares about your sexuality. He cares about your use of His splendid gift to you. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about lust this morning. Now, after that lengthy introduction, I don't have a ton of time to go through my normal outline of defining, demonstrating, and deal with it. I really want to focus on the third part, which is the most important, how to deal with it. But for those, let me just do a brief thing about definition and demonstration really quick. If you really need a definition, a definition of lust, it's very simple. Marian Webster, usually intense or unbridled sexual desire. Dr. DeYoung, in her book, a vice concerned with the desire for sexual pleasure, and she goes on to note disordered desire. Brian Hedges, lust is a disordered and idolatrous sexual desire that is both enslaving and destructive. So if you take that definition, you will see three parts to it. Lust involves sexual desire, or particularly disordered sexual desire. What's that? That's Sexual desire, contrary to God's revealed will for sex. And the third part is selfishness. Generally, lust, the thing we're talking about as a vice, is about a selfishness. Sexual desire just for me. Lust is disordered, selfish, sexual desire. Disordered, selfish, sexual desire. Definition done. And I don't really need to demonstrate lust for you. In fact, I'm not sure I want to get into that, or talk about its harmful effects. Because all you got to do is open up your news app, and you'll see the harmful effects. If you want to see a biblical example, go read about David and see how his lust blossomed into very many other sins, harmful consequences, hurting many people around him. That's the definition. That's the demonstration. Let's get to the real heart of the matter, how to deal with it. We all know what it is. How do we deal with it? Well, let me make three suggestions this morning. Three responses to lust in our lives. Here's how we deal with the vice of lust. And the first one is we resist. Resist. They're all going to be with our. Resist is the first one. We need to resist disordered, selfish, sexual desire, lust. We need to resist it. N.T. Wright tells this joke about Moses coming down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments and is negotiating with God over those commandments. And, you know, Moses is up on the mountain. He's been there a long time. And he comes down with the tablets and he says to the people, good news and bad news. The good news is we got them down from 40 to 10. The bad news is adultery is still in. That joke brings up a true point about sexuality. Dealing with sexual desire is challenging, right? It is one of the most challenging things we deal with. Resisting it is challenging. Giving in to sexual desire is very easy to do, right? And it's not only easy to do, it's pleasurable to do. From a biological perspective, a physiological perspective, it is pleasurable. It is the easiest route. That way, resisting it is a struggle. This is why it is hard. It's hard for us to deal with it. There's absolutely no doubt that God calls us to resist disordered, selfish, sexual desire. There's no doubt. The Bible doesn't talk a lot about sex, but when it does, as I said, it's very clear, very simple, very straightforward. Let me give you a few examples. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Shun fornication. Every sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the fornicator sins against the body itself. 2 Timothy 2.22 Shun youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Ephesians 5.3 But fornication and impurity of any kind or greed must not even be mentioned among you. And 1 Thessalonians four three, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication. Again, I'm naming you most of the verses in the New Testament about this. There are not many of them, but they are clear, they are direct. We don't need 175 pages to explain what the Christian sexual ethic is. In fact, C.S. Lewis did it in one sentence. He said this, there's no getting away from it. The Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. That's the Christian sexual ethic. But pastor, I'm unmarried. I'm in my prime sexual years. Does this mean I can't hook up for sex? There's no getting away from it. The Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. But pastor, I'm attracted to people of the same sex. And the Bible doesn't seem to provide any route for me towards marriage. Does this mean I have to remain celibate celibate all my life? There's no getting away from it. The Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. But pastor, my spouse doesn't satisfy me in the bedroom. Does this mean I have to live the rest of my marriage, the rest of my life, without getting sexual satisfaction, what I want in the bedroom? There's no getting away from it. The Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, this is exactly what's wrong with Christianity today. Right? Here is this old white guy up here saying the same stuff that Christianity has been saying for years. And it's entirely out of step. It's entirely unreasonable to set forth those type of expectations in our culture. This is exactly why people are leaving the church. This is why young people aren't attracted to the faith. Because some guy like me gets up there and says that over and over again in the church. And all I can say to that is, you're right. You're right. It turns people off doesn't mean it's not true, but it does turn people off. I totally agree that the Christian sexual ethic is unreasonable. It is an unreasonable expectation. It is unreasonable in its demands. Jesus is unreasonable in what he asks us to do. And guess what? That's not only true about human sexuality. Go read the Sermon on the Mount. Read the Beatitudes. Read anything that Jesus says. Somebody smacks you in the face, you turn the other cheek, give me a break. I want to pop him right back. Yeah, it's unreasonable. Jesus is unreasonable. And here's the thing. This is what I always kind of struggle with. Christianity and even the Christian sexual ethic is not a mandate. Right? The FBI isn't going to show up. Well, if you do something really bad, they might. But if the FBI is not going to show up at your house and tell you you've got to be faithful in your marriage, the Jesus police aren't going to come. Right? It is not something that is mandated. It is something you voluntarily choose for yourself. You pick up your cross and follow Jesus, and it's not for everyone. And I'm okay with that. It isn't for everyone. And guess what? Jesus is okay with that. There was a time when Jesus was talking to his disciples. This is Matthew 19. And he's talking to them about marriage and about the limitations on divorce. And the disciples and everybody around is like, whoa, what is this dude talking about? He's being entirely unreasonable. And he was. And they got it. And this is what they said to him. His disciples said to him, Matthew 19, verse 10, if such is the case of a man with his wife, that is the limitations, you can't just get rid of your wife, such is the case of a man with his wife, the disciple said, It is better not to marry. You're so unreasonable, Jesus, that I'm, just not, I'm not even going to get married. But then he said to them, Not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can And you could go through that verse. Eunuchs is simply a a word you could replace with celibacy. Let me read it to you with that in there. But he said to them, Not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it is given. For there are those who have been celibate from birth. What he's talking about is people unable to have sex. And then there are those who have been made celibate by others. He was speaking about eunuchs who were made eunuchs by a power or authority. And then he says, and there are those who have chosen to become celibate for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. What's he saying? He's saying, well, that's fine. If you don't want to get married, if you don't want to engage in that, singleness and celibacy are a great option for you and maybe even a preferable option. But know what he says. Let anyone accept this who can. That's the Christian sexual ethic. Jesus puts it before us. He offers it to us, not as something that's a punishment. Remember, this is Jesus. He wants human thriving. When he says something to us, it's because it's good for us. He's not trying to limit your fun, your party, or whatever. But it's optional. He calls us to resist selfish, disordered sexual desire. Let anyone accept this who can if you follow Jesus, it's what he asks of us. Second thing we need to do is to rejoice. We resist and we rejoice. What do we rejoice about? We rejoice in the goodness of human sexuality. The church, Christians, we should embrace and rejoice in the joy of human sexuality. Lust is a vice. Sexual desire is not a vice. It's not a vice to have sexual desire. It's a vice to have disordered, selfish sexual dis- desire. The Bible does not condemn human sexuality, it celebrates it. Remember, it is God who made it. God in fact commanded us to have sex. First Genesis 1:28, this is before the fall people God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. There's only one way to do that. In essence, God said, Go enjoy one another. The first poem in the bible adam to eve is a poem about love and about union union and about human sexuality of the two becoming one it is something celebrated in the scripture and so we as the church we as christians should celebrate human sexuality as god's good gift the bible has a book of erotic love poetry in it that's the kind of god we have song of songs Read it. How fair and pleasant you are, O loved one, delectable maiden. You are stately as a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its branches. O may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your kisses like the best wine that goes down smoothly, gliding over lips and teeth. Now, some of those metaphors may be lost on us, but we all get the gist of that poetry. That's God's Word. Inspired, God-breathed, useful for our training in righteousness. The Bible is not prudish. God is not prudish. Sex is not shameful. Sadly, that's what the church so often taught its people about sex, that it was shameful. That is the one word you could say that the church used to describe human sexuality, shame. That's a travesty. That is malpractice. De Young puts it this way in her book, From Purity Culture to Porn, Why Does the Church's Message About Sex Seem to Center on Shame? Where the culture takes human sexuality to the lowest common denominator, to mere crass biological satisfaction, the church has dwelled upon shaming people. And this has particularly impacted women in the church. It has impacted people who are same-sex attracted in unfair ways. It hasn't impacted people like me. Because there's been people like me who have been yelling at other people. Shame. You know the story of the girl with the full belly being brought up before the church in church discipline. And the guy not being there. We know the disproportionate impact of the church's teaching in these areas. While we as Christians are voluntarily called to resist selfish sexual or disordered sexual desire, we are also called as Christians to embrace the goodness of human sexuality and to not shame or put shame upon it. There's nothing shameful about sex. We should rejoice in it. We resist it. We rejoice in it. And lastly, this morning, we need to recognize, resist, rejoice, Recognize. Recognize what? Let's go back to the unreasonable Christian ethic. There is no getting away from it. The Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. I've admitted Christianity sets up an unreasonable standard. But Christianity also recognizes that fallen humans are not going to live up to that standard. They will fail to meet that standard many times in their life. They will fail to meet that ideal. And what really boggles my mind is why certain parts of the church are arguing the solution to our problem is lowering God's standards, recasting them in ways that make everybody feel good about what they're doing because it's too high of a standard, it's too much of an expectation, and that's how we solve this problem of sexual desire. We lower the bar. Because people can't do this. No kidding! That has been true forever since Jesus spoke those words. It's not like people back then were like, Oh, this is no problem for me, right? People are people. People are fallen sinners. People give in to temptation, including sexual temptation. Jesus kind of knew that. He knew you weren't going to live up to that ideal. Guess what? That's why there's a cross. (laughs) That's why Jesus came. If you could do it, you wouldn't need him. But you desperately need him. Because there's only one person who ever kept that standard. And that's Jesus. And he came to keep that standard for you. So, the answer to the problem is not lowering the bar of God's standards. It's lifting people up to Jesus Christ, to look to Jesus Christ. You don't encourage people to engage in harmful psycho, emotional, physical, spiritual, social behaviors. You call them to recognize that the hope for healing, that solution, that hope for forgiveness and restoration, to take that which is broken and to make it whole, it is found in Jesus Christ. And yes, even our sexual righteousness is found in trusting Jesus Christ. It's about the gospel. And thus, if someone in the church gives in to their selfish, disordered sexual desires, we don't banish them. We don't kick them out of the church. We don't shame them. We call them to something better. And we show them the forgiveness that Christ has for them. This will not result in you being outside the kingdom of God. If you place your trust in Jesus. If you give it over to him. If you are listening to me this morning, and I recognize there are people who may listen to this somewhere down the line, watching it online. If you are listening to this sermon and you feel that brokenness, that sexual brokenness. Maybe you've been unfaithful in your marriage. Maybe you are addicted to pornography. Maybe you are engaging in selfish, disordered sexual desire. Let me remind you that Jesus says, come to me. Bring your brokenness to me. I fix broken things. And we're all broken. We're all broken, including being sexually broken. But Jesus fixes broken things. Give him your burden. He can handle it. And be amazed, by the way, be amazed what he gives you back. Let me close with this story from Tim Keller in a sermon he preached on human sexuality. He said, There is an old story of a king who went into the village streets to, get, to greet his subjects. A beggar sitting by the roadside eagerly held up his alms bowl, sure that the king would give handsomely. It said so the king asked the beggar to give him something. Taken aback, the beggar fished three grains of rice out of his bowl of rice and dropped them into the king's outstretched hand. When at the end of the day, the beggar poured out what he had received, he found to his astonishment three grains of pure gold in the bottom of his bowl. Oh, that I had given him all. Keller concludes, if you give God your sexual desires, I tell you, they'll be reborn. Don't underestimate what Jesus will give you back for your brokenness. Give it to him. Come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heaven burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let anyone accept this who can. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we beg your forgiveness. We beg your forgiveness for our sexual brokenness, which all of us have. We beg your forgiveness for how we have mistreated people disproportionately in the church. We beg your forgiveness, O God, for shame, for the shame that we have cast upon a good gift that you have given us. O Lord Jesus Christ, we are thankful for what you have spoken to us, which is clear which is direct, which is simple, and which is good, good for us. This is how we live well. But Lord, let us remember when those among us give in to this temptation. Help us as a church to help them, to build them back, to show them forgiveness, not shame. And to show them the ideal that you have called us to live. And that we can live and strive towards that. Through the power of the Spirit that dwells within us. Through the work that Jesus has done. We are no longer slaves to sin. Jesus didn't come to put people in slavery. He came to break the chains. Break the chains for people, Lord. For each and every one of us. That we can be more like you. That we can accept what you have told us to be. And live it and rejoice in it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.